Uh, good morning again. If you would, you can turn to page 11 there uh, in your bulletin for today's sermon text. You can turn there in your smartphones or your Bible. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, a very famous and well-known passage. Boys and girls, you have your own trans- your own version, excuse me, that you'll be using there. The bottom of page 11 will be referring to that throughout uh, the sermon as well, so you'll want to wanna turn there. And as you're turning there, so I remember when I was in 11th grade, a long time ago for some of you, not so long ago for others, that I was in this supposed scholarship essay contest that my high school guidance counselor had um, told me about. And I did this massive research, and I wrote and rewrote this paper, and I got recommendations, and I, I, I sent in this paper, this, all this project, and it turns out I won for the entire state of Tennessee. I was so excited. The guidance counselor brought me in to congratulate me and to set up getting out of classes. So we could go to Nashville for the award ceremony, and the governor himself was going to hand out the awards. And then she slipped in. Oh, by the way, I was wrong. It, it's not a scholarship contest. There's no money. It's just, but she was, it, it'll look really good on your college applications, and it, it, it'll pad your resume, so, it, so it'll be okay. Which explains why I won, because all the smart people read the fine print and realized there's no money, so they didn't participate, right? I was so disappointed, because, I mean, I don't care about recognition. I want to be anonymous. I don't want to be known. I wanted money, right? I was like that guy, Jerry Maguire, like, show me the money. I was so disappointed. So I didn't go to the, to the, to the uh, award ceremony. The administration really wanted me to go to the award ceremony because it made my high school look good, made the principal look good. I even got like a, a little handwritten note from the superintendent of Shelby County Schools highly encouraging me to go. And, you know, looking back now, I was a little petulant probably, a little even pedantic maybe. I was like, no, I'm not going. I wanted money, not going. So disappointed. They were disappointed in me. I didn't even tell my parents because they would have made me go, I knew. Eventually, I got this big metal mailed to me in, in, the, in the mail. I have no idea where it is today. I didn't care. I just wanted the scholarship money. I was just so utterly just disappointed in how things had turned out. You ever been disappointed? Maybe something much more significant than that? You ever been let down? You know, so many of our neighbors live in a state of disappointment. One of the quirks of our culture is that, you know, when you try to put your hope in so many different things, um, when those hopes fail, you end up with a lot of disappointment. So I'm not saying that our neighbors articulate disappointment, this disappointment. If you're in conversation with your neighbors, they're not going to say this. This is more like what the, the philosopher Foucault would call unthoughts. A way to think about it is like the background static to our culture is disappointment. People kind of just leave, lead with that kind of just being there as the baseline, especially in a year like 2020. And a passage like Isaiah actually comes along and speaks directly into an overall culture of disappointment. And overall, to use a fancy word, zeitgeist of malaise that kind of just can set on people, especially after a year like 2020. So with that darkness in mind, would you please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word and see as God himself brings a flashlight into our darkness. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, 
that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Uh, This is God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God and heavenly Father, we come before your word this morning thanking you that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us that we might know you. We pray, Father, that you would open up this text to us this morning, that we might know more of your grace, more of your Son, Jesus. We pray you would do this by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. So starting here in chapter 40, Isaiah, or God commands Isaiah to bring good news of comfort to God's people. To a, a disappointing time, a disappointing era, bring this news of comfort and joy. News that God's going to do something amazing by His grace. And that gets us to our theme for today. Here's where we're going to try to go today. Is this, that God's comfort comes to the world in King Jesus. That Jesus is the answer. Jesus is this crying out for comfort, but Jesus is the answer. I want you to get into the emotive reality of this text. So for some of you, this may be the first time you've seen this picture. For many of you, this would be a a, a glimpse of nostalgia. Remember that famous picture from the end of World War II? The sailor kissing the nurse. I think we have it up here for you. Remember this picture? Famous picture. It actually wasn't famous in its time. It was like on page like 30 of the Time magazine, and it took it almost a year to become famous. And eventually these two people actually got married. How cool is that, right? So anyway, this famous picture into World War II, I think this is probably VE Day, not VJ Day. They're super excited. The war is over. Everybody's excited. This guy grabs this nurse, just kisses her in his joy. That's verses 1 and 2. That's the emotive reality that people would have felt, that the warfare is ended. It's over. The conflict is done. The iniquity is pardoned. Sin is forgiven. You see, Christmas is bigger than our whole world because Jesus ends the alienation. Jesus ends the conflict between God and humanity. Now, you may chafe at that. Warfare? Conflict? But biblical Christianity has always held that humanity is in conflict with its creator. It's out of sorts with God. We have rebelled against him. We've offended him. We are at war with God. But just as clear in the Bible is that God in his grace 
ends the warfare. He ends the conflict himself. And through Isaiah, God tells us that part of his plan for reconciliation is this. He's going to send someone amazing. Someone so amazing that in a way their culture would understand how amazing he is. In verses 3 through 5, he says that their comfort comes in the most glorious person ever. Here's how they would have received this. So going back to my high school days, my high school, when I went there as a freshman, I noticed had this really great, really nice amphitheater. And through four years of high school, we never used the amphitheater. There were never any events held in the amphitheater. And I, was, I remember asking somebody, I was finally like a senior, said, why do we have this amphitheater? What, what is this for? And it turns out that the year before I got there, so I would have been in eighth grade, is George H.W. Bush, the then president came and spoke and so they built this amphitheater for this one time use because the president of the united states is going to be there they had to do this prep work and that's what verses three through five are telling us when ancient kings would come to visit their people one of the things they would do is they would make you know we the equivalent of filling in all the potholes and stuff before the president comes they would actually go out and the roads coming into town they would make them as smooth as possible they would try to straighten up the bad parts just clean it up make it really nice and level and smooth as a way of honoring this coming king and here isaiah tells us catch this that this coming one is so glorious he's so amazing the only proportional response is to level the mountains to fill in the valleys to make this thing a smooth plain because the glory of god himself is coming he's that amazing boys and girls i want to make sure you get this let's look together at your verse four here's what here's what isaiah tells us about this coming one he says this says he is so awesome he deserves to walk on a beautiful garden path even in a desert so do what it takes to water get soil make the flowers grow even in the midst of a desert this beautiful path because that's the only thing that's appropriate for this coming one now i don't know about you but the way my heart is wired when i hear that when i hear verses three and four i think prep work i think well I have to level my mountains to receive this grace. I have to fill up my valleys. I better get my act together to receive this grace. That for me to encounter this coming one, I need to clean myself up. Because this person is so great and I'm so not that I've got to get ready for them. For, so Jesus will receive me in his greatness. But the text itself won't let me. And this is where we believe in the inspiration and infallibility of God's words that even the very grammar is important. And this is one of those aspects where we see this. In verse 4, all the verbs are passive. This is what theologians and linguists call divine passives, meaning God is the assumed actor. So notice what happens in verse 4. It says they are to be filled. They are to be leveled. God is not calling his people to action. He's telling them what he's going to do for them. God himself will make the necessary preparations for this coming one. See, God didn't come to his people then, and he doesn't come to his people now and say, get yourself ready for grace. Clean up your act, and then I'll help you. As we talked about last week, it's Ben Franklin who said God helps those who help themselves. The Bible says God helps those who can't help themselves. 
It's never do this and I will love you. It's I love you so I have done this. And we see that here. This coming one is so amazing. There's no way you can proportionally respond. So God will do it for you. He will level the valleys. He will bring down the mountains. God comes to the broken and says, let me fix you because you can't fix yourself. I love that. Because what that tells me is that if the mountains and valleys of Palestine cannot stop his coming, neither can the ups and downs of my heart. Nor yours. No obstacles in our heart can stop God's grace from coming to us. So don't listen to that voice. You know that voice. Don't listen to that voice telling you you're too bad, you're too sinful, you've blown it. If they only knew... God can't be gracious to you. You've got too much junk there. No, neither the mountains, nor your failures, nor your internet history can stop the grace of God from coming to you. See, now based on the New Testament, we know this coming person is the Lord Jesus Christ. But those in Isaiah's day, they didn't know that. They just knew that somehow it was going to be the glory of God himself coming in a person in a way they didn't understand. So they, they would have emphasized and concentrated on that word glory. Glory is such a church word, isn't it? What, is, what does glory mean? How often outside of this room do you hear or even use the word glory? We don't really get it, do we? Because it's just not a word that we use that much. We would use words in our language to get this concept. We would use the words significance. Perhaps even ostentation could grab the Hebrew concept of glory. I want to give you a picture of this. And boys and girls, maybe we can help mom and dad get this. Remember this movie? Remember Aladdin? Remember this scene right here where he asks to be a prince? And so he's coming into Agrabah, remember? And Robin Williams as the genie is like making this. Hey, clear the way in the old bazaar. Hey, you, let us through. It's a bright new star. Great song. He's doing that. And there's this huge presentation. Remember that? He's coming to show all of his stuff. All of that ostentation, all of that wealth, all that stuff was to show his worth as a prince, to show his glory. And in the ancient world, they actually tapped into a bit of history there. In the ancient world, when a king came to visit, if he wanted to impress them, he would bring not just an entourage, but he would bring a display of his wealth, and he would give part of his wealth away to his people as he came. Because the whole point was to show off his glory, to show off his significance by his ostentation. Even today, when you hear the idea of dress to impress, you know people wear certain things because they want to be noticed, because of the occasion, there's significance here, so we should wear this to reflect that. That's glory. Or maybe another way to think about it in the slang is to say bling. People use bling to show off how important, wealthy, and significant they are. The ostentation has a purpose. And in this context, what Isaiah is telling us is that Jesus is the manifest glory of God. That when God wants to show off, he puts on Jesus. In other words, Jesus is God's bling. That when God wants to dress to impress, he put on Jesus by becoming human with us. What's the big deal with that? Okay, thanks for that. Why? Why does that matter? Because whether you call yourself a Christian or not, part of our human frailty, part of our brokenness, is that deep down we don't believe God's good intentions for us. We don't trust God's good will towards us. 
we believe that we somehow have to pry blessing and favor from his begrudging hands. Christmas is bigger than our whole world because when we look on Jesus, we see the glory of God freely given for our comfort, for our salvation. It's as if God wanted to give his people a hug is what Isaiah is telling us. But God is spirit. He has no arms. And so he puts on Jesus so he can embrace us in his comfort. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message of Advent. It's the message of Christianity. Verses 6 through 8 continue this theme of comfort. Now, as I've said before, you know, a sermon is not my opinion. This is not for me to get up here and to tell you Sean's goals for life or Sean's ways that you can have a better life or here is what I think we should do. No, who cares about that? The sermon is taking God's word, unpacking God's word, and trying to apply God's word. And I tell you that because I've got to get a little tedious here in verses 6 through 8. Before we look at it, I just want you to, to hear me out here. So... The quotation marks in Scripture, whenever you see quotation marks, those are always the translator's opinion. They're not in the original. They have to figure out from context where to use that. And I personally and many other uh, scholars and linguists, which I'm not one of, um, think that the ESV kind of gets it wrong in its quotation marks. And so I've changed the quotation marks in your bulletin. That's not the ESV placement of the quotation marks. And here's why. What happens is a voice cries in verse 6, And then Isaiah answers in verse 6. But then I believe his answer carries on through verse 7. And then a different voice counter answers in verse 8. Okay, that sounds really confusing, but let's look at it together and hopefully it'll make more sense. So verses 6 through 7 say this. A voice cries. A voice says cry. Okay, one voice. And I said, what shall I cry? And then he continues to answer. All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. See what's going on here is Isaiah knows himself. He knows his people. And so he asks in verse 6 through 7, How can your coming glory be good news for broken, messed up, frail people who keep messing up? How is that good news? We're too frail. Here's how we put it for the boys and girls, so maybe we can all understand what's going on here. Let's all look at the a kid's version of verses 6 through 7. It says this, God commanded, proclaim this. But I said, how can I? Your people are as weak as grass and wildflowers. The grass dies and the flowers fall in the hot wind. So too your people will fall under the breath of God. How is your glory good news? See, God's people are so weak that his glory will destroy them when it comes. And so God answers in that famous verse, verse 8. Now let's look at it with new eyes. How does God answer? God answers, you're right. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. How is God's glory coming such good news? Because God promises it will be. Boys and girls, actually even older students, does the mom and dad ever pull the trump card out when you're having maybe a disagreement? Why do I have to do this? I don't want to do this. And what do they say when they've had enough? Because I said so. And that's what God says here. Isaiah's like, it's not good news. We're frail. You're scary. What are we going to do? And God says, I promise it's good news. It's good news because I say it's good news. And what better promise could there be? 
That's the whole point of this passage. This coming glory is amazing. God's people are so frail it's going to destroy them. God says, yeah, I know you think that, but I promise it's good news. It's good news because I say it's good news and God can't lie. See, God's promise is stronger than our sense of guilt. God's promise is stronger than our actual guilt. God's promise is stronger than our sense of lacking our sense that I'm not prepared. No, God's promise is that you don't have to do that. How freeing and wonderful is that? I mean, so often, don't we feel pressure to perform? Not just in here, but out there. Don't we feel pressure to be on our best behavior so others will like us? Notice right here what God says. God knows our weakness and he loves us anyway. God recognizes that we're weak and that we're frail and that we're feeble. He knows his glory is scary. He knows his power, his significance is intimidating. And that coming to people like us, it can even be frightening and not comforting. And so what, what does he do? When God comes in glory, he did it in a baby. He did it in Jesus to bring the comfort that he promised. Because the heart of God's grace is to come in mercy and comfort, not anger to punish. Do you believe that? God promises that his coming glory in a person will bring hope, will bring comfort. And then explicitly, At the end of verse 9, the text tells us that this person will be God himself. He goes on to describe him as mighty and powerful. And as if he knows we still doubt such good news of comfort. He's just too good to be true. It can't possibly be true. Check out the rest of verse 10. What does it say there? It says, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. So remember going back to the Aladdin thing, right? He he brings this wealth to show off, but what else does he do with the wealth? He throws it out to the people. He gives it to them. His reward is with him, so he gives the reward away. The fruits of his victory are freely given. All the things that a conquering king gives out to his people, Jesus comes, his reward is with them, and it says his recompense is before him. What's a recompense, right? It's what he gets paid. So the reward's what he gives. The recompense is what he gets paid. His reward is in front of him. What in the world is the reward that's in front of Jesus? Well, again, let's go back to Aladdin. There's no picture, just back in your mind's eye. What was Aladdin doing coming into Agrabah like that with that huge procession? What was the point? He wanted a jasmine right? He wanted the princess. He wanted to show off to her dad to show that he could support her. He wanted to make this big impression because he wanted her. That was the reward that was before him. And last week we saw that Jesus came to save us. Jesus came to rescue us. And today this text tells us that the people Jesus rescues, us, we are what he gets. We are what he wants. We are what he came after. We are Jesus' reward. See, the incarnation is bigger than our whole world, and it's bigger than that voice of doubt that's whispering in your heart even right now, because in a marvelous display of God's glory, Jesus came to get you, his bride, his church, us, We are the reward set before the coming glorious king. If that doesn't bring you assurance of God's love, I I don't know what will. 
It is for the joy of having his people that God came as human in Jesus for us. He wants to be with us. And when he does come, what does this powerful, glorious king do? What does he do with his power? Let's all look together at verse 11. What does he do? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Abraham Lincoln once said, Nearly all people can handle adversity, but if you want to test a person's character, give them power. And we see here the character of God. When he comes, he uses his power to shepherd and to comfort and to gently strengthen his people with tenderness. You don't you just love that picture of picking up a little lamb and just carrying it next to his chest? Like, I mean, we don't do that today, but like, like you would a puppy or a kitten or a baby. It's this beautiful picture of tenderness. That God's power in verse 10 is Jesus taking care of God's people. He will gather together his rescued community. He will refresh with real hope because he will bathe us in God's love. Now, as we wrap this up, this comforting display of God's glorious comfort is really what we are about as a church. If you remember way back, we first talked about our three core values back in August. We believe that here at Sycamore in the gospel, we receive God's love, that we receive real hope, and that we get to relish in being a rescued community. And we see all of those things here in Isaiah 40. Christmas is bigger than our whole world because the coming of Jesus Christ empowers this life-changing, city-saving, world-renewing gospel that most of us in the room have received. Do you see the coming of Jesus as that big, as that profound, as that powerful? Or are you so used to hearing, hearing it that when you see a bulletin cover like this, bigger than our whole world. Oh, that's cute. I like that theme. But you're not really struck by, what are we saying? Of all the things that have happened in human history, Jesus being born in Bethlehem is bigger than all of that? Of all of the accomplishments humanity has on the books, Jesus is bigger than all of that? That's what we're saying. That's what the Bible says. That's what the scripture says, that this coming is that huge. That Bethlehem changed the world. Now, if you're here today and you're still investigating, maybe you're visiting with family and you're only here because they, they really appreciate you coming to church, I want to jump back to verse 2. Let's all look at verse 2 together. The very beginning, he says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Now, one way you can read that, like, I knew it. God's kind of petty. Right there, he's going to give us double for all of our sins. Well, the Bible is clear that all of us are born into a state of rebellion against our Creator. That what the Bible calls sin. It's not just the stuff we do, but it comes from inside of us, it flows out of us. It's who we are in our nature. And God promises that one day, someday, this coming King, who the New Testament tells us is Jesus, that He will end the warfare. The iniquity, the sin will be pardoned. That God's people will receive double for all of our sins. That's not a threat. That's a promise of grace. And here's why. 
because God is holy and he hates sin. He doesn't just say, don't sin. He says, be holy. It's both. And here's where the double for our sin comes in. Jesus Christ died the death we should have died for our sins. The guilt that we had, he paid for. He paid for our guilt on the cross by his blood. And when we place our faith and trust in him, we receive his forgiveness. Our guilt is covered. The iniquity is taken away. Hallelujah. But that's only half the story. Jesus also lived the life we should have lived. His righteousness, His holiness to those who confess Him as Lord that's actually given to us in His resurrection. That when we place our faith and trust in Him, not only are we forgiven, but we are made holy in His sight because of the life of Jesus. So when you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, you receive double for your sins, forgiveness and holiness and adopted into God's family and made his own. As part of that family, you can then soak yourself in the comfort and grace that Isaiah speaks of here. That's all available to you. And for those of you in the room who are Christians, you know, we live in a time when our neighbors less and less see the gospel as that big of a deal. But if we let ourselves be God's comforting presence in our community if we will let ourselves joyfully rest in jesus alone as he's offered in the gospel we could see god's grace transform our area because christmas is bigger than our whole world because god brings his comfort in king jesus let's pray together gracious god and heavenly father lord it's too much It just seems too good to be true. We're trained to be skeptics. No one's this nice to us. No one does this much for us unless they want something. Father, I pray that even now you would overcome our natural skepticism with the beauty of your grace. Would you bring us comfort, Lord, by Lord Jesus? Would you help us see once again that he is your glory and that he is our salvation? We pray, Lord, that for those of us here who know you, that we would take us deeper into the cross, deeper into the comfort that you offer us, and let this Christmas be a celebration of the joy of our salvation in Christ. And Lord, we pray for those who are here today who, who may not know you. We pray that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, portrayed as crucified and resurrected, that you would fulfill your promise of drawing all people to yourself. Now, Lord, would you build your church even now, We ask in Jesus' name, amen.